0: Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Bethlehem Church Podcast, where our goal is to offer you compelling biblical content to equip you to live an empowered Christian life. Each week, you'll hear a message from our lead pastor, Matt Robinson, or another member of the Bethlehem team. We also host a conversation every week where we unpack different facets of Sunday's message. We're so excited about this message, and we hope it's a blessing to you. Let's jump in. If you've been hanging with us so far in the study, we're uh, we're heading into Romans chapter 9. And so where I'd like to begin today is Romans chapter 8, because there's a little bit in the end of that chapter that we haven't got to yet that I think is, is worth covering. Uh, if you'd like to read my notes, if you want to read ahead and figure out just how long it's going to take me to get through this, because I did go over in the 9 a.m., uh, you can read my notes in the program. They are all there, everything that I will be speaking from today. So chapter nine Paul's uh, in Paul's letter is super controversial like if you're if you're in this room and you know anything about Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 9 you know that there's a lot I mean there's like a broad spectrum of opinions on this topic of election and what it means to be elect and you know the whole like predestination thing, God's foreknowledge like there's a lot in the mix here that gets really complicated uh, and my goal this morning is to like not complicate it at all. Um, So we're going to try to really streamline this idea, and I think what's going to be helpful is if we take a storied approach to Scripture. What do I mean by that? Man, we're popping today. I don't know if that's me, my big head, or the microphone. Um, I could just switch to a handheld if it gets too bad, Kyle. Um, But anyway, so as as we look at this, if we take a storied approach to Scripture, we understand that Romans chapter 9 is not something that we can just isolate and use it as its own thing. Right, And a lot of people do that, and a lot of those people arrive at very interesting conclusions. Um, But what we have to see is that Paul viewed himself as part of a larger story, and what he was writing falls into that. And so this this falls inside of a lot of other stories and narrative of Scripture, and we're going to kind of wade through those, and I think that they'll help make a lot of uh, sense to it. So let's read the end of chapter 8 here. We'll start in verse 28. Uh, Paul ends the dialogue on a, a super high note, actually. And if you're ever discouraged, this is a good, a good passage to uh, to read because it's very encouraging. Now, verse 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who were called according to His purpose. That's a coffee mug verse right there. Uh, 29, for those who him, whom He foreknew, right, this is where this language starts to appear. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. So that he would, uh, Kyle, I'm going to take a handheld real quick. 22. Testing. Ooh. Okay, cool. Right on. All right, sorry about that, y'all. Uh, so anyway, reading, reading on here. Um, and these whom he predestined, he also called... And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. There's like a train of things happening here. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? There's that term again. to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth there's a lot of things here, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the sermon, Steve. That's it. I'm done. That's good enough right there. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. (laughs) Appreciate your applause. No, so at the, at the end of the chapter eight here, as we move into a different discussion, Paul ends on a, a super high note where he's like, hey, listen, there isn't a cosmic evil, there isn't an earthly circumstance that can separate you, the church, from God's love. And that's a really powerful principle that we have to hang on to. But as chapter eight closes and nine begins, there's a dramatic shift in Paul's tone that you'll see as you read, And what we have to understand is that when Paul was writing this, he didn't write one chapter at a time. I mean, I'm sure he took breaks, It's my guess, but it's one unified work. And so this is a break in the conversation where he shifts his tone a different direction. And so as chapter 8 closes, he says this in in chapter 9, verse 1. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Teenagers in the back, Paul said, no cap. This is the truth. You ready for it? None of them laughed. All y'all laughed. That's okay. I'll be at, Listen, I'll be at camp for five days with you starting today, and I'm not going to let you live it down. Um, but Paul says, I'm, I'm not lying. Like, my conscience bears witness. And he says, um, or my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief. That's a, huge, that's a huge change. Like, Paul's got a huge mood shift right here. And he says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is Christ according to the flesh, who is over all. God bless it forever. Amen. So in chapter 9, Paul kind of begins this discussion after the crescendo in chapter 8, where he's like, hey, listen, like Jesus does love you. And there isn't anything that can separate you, his elect people, from his love. But he said, I'm, I have a, an unceasing grief about one thing, and that is that my brethren, my people, are now estranged, in a sense, because of what Jesus did. And that sounds a little harsh when you think about it, but think about it this way. as we As we begin to talk about this idea of election and what Paul moves into in Romans chapter 9, understand that, like, you know, God's people are now, the, the whole letter of the Romans, right? Like circumcision, neutral, Gentiles and Jews together under Jesus. That is the banner. National Israel is no longer the banner. Like there, there cannot be two different peoples of God. And so what Paul will embark on a, a defense on in this chapter, um, yes, he's going to talk about election, but from a standpoint of defending God's promises, Defending that he is faithful and he did not abandon his people and that he is, he is faithful to what he, what he says. And such, uh, man, worship today was fire. Can we all agree with that? Yes. Hope you all hope y'all understood that metaphor. Hi, Roy. How are you? Good to see you, buddy. Um, no, but, but the same God, the same God who was active and, and, and working in the Old Testament is, in fact, the same one that is active in Paul's writing and in Paul's theology in the New Testament. There is no difference. And I think that there's a stigma attached to the Old Testament that says, like, oh, well, that's a little bit different. That was a period of wrath, not grace. That's, that's not true at all. And so looking at this from a, uh, a spirit of continuity, right, like the story continues, and that's where we're at. We're talking about a storied approach. Paul is just continuing what has been happening for a long time. At this point right i'm going to change microphone hands um so but anyway but he's he's mourning something Uh, paul is mourning and he's wishing himself a curse for his brethren the, the national jewish people and can i just like sidebar this is free right can we just acknowledge for a second that paul looked at the jewish people these are the same people that for his entire ministry ran him out of town tried to kill him chased him like a dog and yet he stands, you know, before his audience and he says, you know, I wish I could be accursed in their place. That's powerful. And if you're anything like me, like, I, you know, I struggle to show love that way to those that I care about, much less those that wish me harm. And so let Paul be an example of the greatest example that true love is being willing to, to trade places and lay yourself down for those that even wish you harm. And that is a That is like a high standard of love that we are called to as Christians. So Paul's focus is not a a systematic theology. It's it's an assertion that God keeps his promises. And since Jesus was the culmination of Israel's story and the author of the new covenant, the chosen people of God are now both Jews and Gentiles. So if you're tracking with me here, the, the tension that is present in this chapter is Paul has a Jewish and a Gentile audience that he's writing to. And this part is kind of for them where he's like, hey, listen, yes, the people of God are identified in a different fashion now, and that, you know, yes, national Israel that was his people, like some of you are and have come to know your, your Messiah Jesus, but not all of them are, and he's like, but what that doesn't mean is that God wasn't faithful. What that doesn't mean was that he didn't end up, end up uh, holding up his end of the bargain that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, Right? That's that's where Paul is going, is that he is, in fact, faithful. And so, has God failed his people in some way? No. I would argue that he is not. And so, what we're going to talk about in this chapter, and I'm going to try to talk fast, because there's a lot of heavy stuff in here. And this is not, we're going to cover the whole chapter, but this is not an exhaustive study, right? If you'd like to do that, you can spend hours and hours and hours and hours on just this chapter. And I would encourage you to do so. But I don't think y'all want to miss lunch and dinner today, so we're not going to do that. Um, but, but as we move through, uh, that's, that's where Paul is going. And this idea, if this is a foreign topic for you, like what Paul's talking about, I think where this kind of bridges the gap for us philosophically. Um, how many of y'all have ever, and you don't have to raise your hand, but you ever like been weighing the tension between like, so if God is sovereign, right, Is he, and he's over everything and he sees everything, does that mean that either he does everything and is an active agent, even in the things that bring us pain, or is he, like, is he doing that or or does he sit back and allow that to happen, right? Like, I think this is a, this is a tension that our world and, and us, we struggle with, you know, does God do good and do evil or does he allow these things to happen and what's the difference either way? And I think Paul kind of addresses that same tension from a different perspective, and spoiler alert, he kind of leaves it at tension a little bit. And I think this is just something that we kind of have to parse out a little bit as we move through the chapter. Um, but but this is kind of what this is kind of what we're talking about. And as Paul moves, you know, really what he's after here, like yes, God was faithful to his people, and here's how, because of how he chooses his people, and the church is called. God's chosen people, his treasured possession. He chose us. He elected us. We are God's elect. But the tension there is that not everybody is. And so we really need to parse this thing out as we progress through the message. What does it mean to be elect? What does it mean to not be? And I think that Paul has a has a lot to say on this. So has God failed his people? No. And I would say that part of that and again this is heavy stuff it's going to get super practical here in about 3 4 minutes i promise just hang with me because this is important stuff so israel in paul's mind is not actually israel quote unquote if that makes sense let's read verse 6 paul says this but it is not as though the word of god has failed for they are not all israel who defend or who descended from israel nor are they all children because they are abraham's descendants but He quotes Genesis, through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. And when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, Paul speaking to his Jewish audience, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything, good or bad, so that God's purpose, this phrase is important, remember this, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Okay, so track with me here for just a moment. Paul is addressing his audience, Jews, Gentiles, and he's been stressing unity and justification by faith this whole time. And he makes two very good points here. He says, listen, Jewish people, I know that you're like a fan of your heritage and that's important to you and you put a premium on that and that's great. He said, but here's the thing. he said, let's talk about Abraham and Sarah for a minute. This chick had a baby when she was 100. Yeah, those of you who are laughing, like, it's funny. And Isaac's name in Hebrew, Yitzhak, actually means laughter. So it's like full circle. <laughs> it's a thing. So, it, you know, God thought it was funny, Right it is and so what paul is saying is like that was a that was a supernatural thing that i did abraham and sarah did not do that and then the second point that he makes here he talks about uh, jacob and esau the two brothers that were born from isaac and he says you know before they were even born before we ever figured out that esau was going to be a really hairy guy and jacob was going to be a trickster Like before all of that, God said the older will serve the younger before anything had ever happened. And if you know anything about the ancient Near East, is that like they live by if you ain't first, you're last. Like if you're not the firstborn, you don't matter. Bottom line. But yet, in this situation, the secondborn takes the family blessing. The secondborn is the lineage that God uses for, you know, to produce his people, Israel. And so Paul is saying, like, you may think that you're something, but the reality is, is like everything that you are that you boast about is actually something that God did, not something that you did. And as a, I mean, you know, you could apply this 10 different ways, but it just as a sidebar, like wherever you are in your life, understand that everything good, Peter said every, every good gift comes from above, right? Everything that we have, everything that we think we are that is good has zero to do with what you've done and who you are zero and paul paul takes this concept and he he takes it a million different directions throughout the book to say hey listen be nice to each other and coexist together because none of you is better than the other person bottom line everything good about us is something that god did right and so let that be a lesson for all of us we should be able to coexist together Regardless of our skin color, our creeds, our nationalities, our beliefs, our political affiliations, right? None of that should matter. It shouldn't matter at all. Why? Because we're God's people. And on this topic of election, elections are very controversial, right? Every two and four years, half of our country decides to hate the other and vice versa. It's very divisive. And so Paul's goal with this idea of election is that it brings the body together. It doesn't divide it. And so as we continue on this, understand Paul's, Paul's goal. Your new birth in Christ is supernatural. Listen, when we talk about the elect, what does it mean to be elected? It, it, it simply means that you are in God's family. You have professed your faith in Jesus, and you were a follower of his, and guess what? You've been reborn. And just like Abraham's son Isaac's birth was supernatural, your rebirth as a Christian is a supernatural thing. And it is something that we cannot boast in, but we should, we should tell everybody about. Because it's a pretty cool thing. If y'all ever heard of somebody that was 100 years old that gave birth to a baby and everything was cool, like, you'd be telling everybody about it. That'd be a TLC show. Uh-huh. Everybody who's laughing watches dumb stuff on TLC every single night. I'm calling it. My wife's included. So God's choice in us has nothing to do with our status or works, just grace. So in Paul's mind, he's like, if God chose his people, not by who they were, but just by his grace, and he, he just chose them, then why couldn't Gentiles be included? Why, why would the church body have to be just Jewish, is kind of what Paul, Paul's after here. And so, and if God's standard for showing love and, and calling is based on grace, our standard should be the same. Our standard of how we treat other people should not be based on how we perceive them or who they are, it should be all about who Jesus is. Because a lot of us in here, we treat people a certain kind of way because we feel like they're beneath us. And you may not think that, but that's the core of the issue. I would never do something like that. Therefore, boom, and we roast them. And God says, have you looked at yourself in the mirror lately? Like, have you honestly considered who you are before you alienate somebody else based on what they've done? And if we're honest with ourselves, we're like, yeah, you're right. That's pretty messed up. Or you do what I do and you're like, no, I, you know, I'm, I'm, hey, listen, I'm a pretty decent guy, right? I try to be a good dad and husband. I'm not, I'm not that. And God says, no, you're that. You are that. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, but, and he's like, no, no more buts. No more buts. Pastor Matt knows I'm all about, well, I, yeah, but, you know, that's kind of where I'm at with stuff. Um, where's he at? Oh, there you are. He knows, he knows where I'm at. Um. (laughs) anyway so moving forward Israel was God's chosen people and Paul is now saying listen just like Israel was God's elect chosen people that is now the position of the church who is the church us okay a lot of different answers nobody's actually wrong but it's us we are the church there we go I'm just going to start asking only rhetorical questions (laughs) so we we have now filled that slot so that phrase that, that stuck out, according to his choice, right, when it, when it talks about election, why did God choose the people that he chose? It's a very valid question. Why does God choose who he chooses? And this is, where, this is the tension for Paul. Why has God chosen to now do the work that he's doing through the church and no longer through a national, like a nation, like a nation state? Why is that his plan now? And so I think the answer for that question can be found in the story of Abraham, because Abraham, as far as this whole thing is concerned, is kind of the first guy who, who gets picked out and chosen. And so uh, Genesis 12, this is the first verse of Genesis 12, says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house, all those places, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse." And so that sounds awesome to all of us. We're like, yeah, I want that, right? I want to be blessed. And everybody in here, like, 10th vacation of the year on Facebook, like, hashtag blessed. Out here on the Caymans or wherever you go on vacation, I don't know. I don't have one planned for this year. My wife's probably mad. I don't know. Uh, anyway, but but our standard for blessing is like, yeah, we want all that good stuff. We want God's blessing on our life. And God says, okay, do you know what that's for? Do you know why I bless you and people is it? Be- Listen, and this, this tracks with the whole conversation. What we consider a blessing, does God give that to somebody over another because they're better? No, he doesn't. And the answer to that question is found at the end of this passage. God said this to Abraham, And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham was chosen by Yahweh for no observable reason. Abraham was God's elect, and this is pretty much the first, I mean, you you know, God chose Noah, and there's some other examples, but this is like the first, like, Israelite example, right? He's like the guy, okay? And so God chose him for, for no reason, right? He, you know, he comes to, to Abraham, who lives in, whose name was Abram, and he lived in Ur, which is a funny town name, but it was in Babylon. Babylon is like the villain in the Old Testament. So he was from a place that, like, no Israelite would have been like, oh, yeah, that's pretty cool, you know, I'm trying to think of a, a town name that's equivalent to that, and I wanted to say Dundalk, but there's a lot of y'all from, from Dundalk in here, so I'm not going to say that. Um, <laughs> love me some Dundalk. But, <laughs> um, so, but, but Abraham's like, he's a nobody, like he has no heritage to boast of, and he's actually from a place that the Israelites would have considered, like, ooh, Babylon. Like, they killed a lot of us. That's pretty awful. And God said, yeah, but I'm going to pick him out of a place that is evil, and he's going to reverse, like through his family line, all of the evil in this world will be reversed. And boy, that's a slap in the face to the evil forces that operate in the supernatural. You know what I mean? Like way back when in Genesis 12, God said, this is going to be pretty funny looking when this comes to fruition one day. Y'all just wait. And so, he, but he picks him, and his purpose, he, he wasn't, God didn't just say, hey, Abraham, I like you. And now you get to go to heaven and nobody else does. And that's, I think, is a lot of how, we, like, when we think about God choosing people, that's what we think that he does. I like you, you're pretty cool, so you get to come with me and nobody else does. And God said, no, I'm picking you so I can restore the Edenic blessing of Eden to the rest of the world. So, tracking on that train of thought, when God blesses us, because we are, y'all, all, all of you guys agreed, you're captive now. He doesn't bless you because you're better than your neighbor. He blesses you because he expects that blessing to travel somewhere else. That's right. That's right. That is the purpose. And when, the sooner that we stop looking at a blessing as if it's like, oh, my gosh, yes, you know, I, you know, this is for me. This is my, you know, my thing. No, like our attitude should be, oh, my goodness, how can I use my God-given gifts, abilities, and talents to, to further what he wants done in our world? That's, that's the idea behind blessing. And Abraham is a prime example of somebody being picked out and chosen and elected to do something really awesome. And his, like, it was a job. It's vocational. Like Abraham had a purpose. That was, that was the whole thing. To bring the Eden blessing back to all the families of the earth. What is the Eden blessing? Fellowship with God. When Adam was created... He, he had a, it was face to face. He was as close to me and Steve right here. He probably wasn't as good looking as Steve, but you get the picture, right? Like, and you too, Steve, this Steve back here, there's a bunch of Steves in here. Um, but, but anyway, like God, God fellowshiped with humans and sin wrecked all that. And so God's plan from the time that happened was we're going to reverse this thing. That's why the Bible starts in a garden and it ends in a garden. In the end, he gets what he wants, Right? And so that Eden blessing is going to be restored through Abraham and his family. And where this loops into Paul's conversation with the Jewish people is he's like, those of you who don't want Gentiles included, do you understand that way back here, when God selected Abraham, in the same sentence, it was for the purpose of including the Gentiles. That was the whole purpose. And so Paul's audience was was obviously missing that. And so... Looking at election, right, and this is kind of where the rubber meets the road for us, as Paul talks about this concept, looking at election from a the, the, the storied approach, right, how did God elect Abraham, what was the purpose, and Abraham, you know, Isaac, and Jacob, right, how does that transpire? And then if he's using that same principle, obviously, it translates over to working in his church the same way. Your job as being elect, right, as being followers of Jesus, his chosen people, his church— is to restore the Eden blessing to the rest of the families of the earth. That is the point. And so when we talk about election, when we talk about all these things in Romans chapter 9, understand this is the angle that Paul's coming at it from. It's not about God has favorites, right? It's about, yeah, God chooses people, but he chose Abraham so he would bless Abraham's neighbor. You know what I mean? You guys track it with me? We good? Okay, cool, awesome. Moving on. So, we got to think about our own election on that same terms. Verse 13, just as it, and this is a good one. This is where people get tripped up at. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. He's, uh, he's quoting Malachi chapter 1. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, he's a prime example of this, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So let's break this down. (laughs) I'm worried about touching my mic, but it's off. Um, So just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. You read that outside of its context and you're like, whoa, pump the brakes. You mean that God just chooses to love somebody and hate another? And then you're like, so where do I fall on that spectrum? Right? Like, does he like me? Is there something I can do to kind of gain his favor on that? It's weird. It's weird to read by itself. But if you go back and you read Malachi, really, just the whole book of Malachi, but it's about conflict between the Edomites who are the children of Esau, and the Israelites, the, the children of Jacob, right? And this Hebrew word for love, really, it's a technical term in ancient Near Eastern treaty documents for like a covenantal relationship. And so contextually, when we look at this, it's really like, hey, listen, I've chosen Jacob, and because I haven't chosen Esau, he's on the other end of that. But I've chosen Jacob because I have a covenant with him. Like, he's, he's my priority over Esau or over the Edomites because I have made a covenant and chosen the Israelites. It's not about I hate one and I love the other for some arbitrary reason. It's a standing, right? The Israelites had God's favor because of their standing, and let's, take a, let's hop over, right, or rewind a couple hundred years to Egypt. The Israelites were in Egypt. They didn't have Torah. They didn't have the temple. They were just a, a group of Hebrews that were slaves in Egypt. And you really can't make a moral argument that they were more morally upright than the Egyptians. But yet God chose to have mercy on them and to destroy Pharaoh because of their standing. And so Paul's kind of, he's like, hey, listen, like this, this has implications Like, if you're, you know, because God made a covenant and chose Abraham, that's going somewhere. God said, I'm going to work, this is where, like, chapter 8 comes into play. I'm going to work all this evil out for good. And Jesus is going to come from this lineage of people eventually. And it does not matter what steps in my way, I'm going to accomplish what I want to do. Why? Because ultimately, it includes all the families. It includes everybody else into the Eden Blessing. And so as we talk about this, hang on, I'm going to loop this through in just a second. I can see some blank looks. I'm losing y'all. I promise. We're almost there. Um, But as we loop this together, Paul's like, listen, like God is going to have mercy on who he is going to have mercy. Why? Because he has a purpose. It's not about he loves one, hates the other. It's about the fact that he has a plan, and that plan is going to come to fruition. And Pharaoh met his demise not because of who he was and God chose to destroy him, but because Pharaoh made his choice. And listen, I'm a pretty sympathetic dude. You can ask my wife, right? I'm always erring on the side of, you know, not being harsh. Um, But Pharaoh, I have no sympathy for the guy. He had nine chances, nine chances to get it right before he ended up getting wiped out in the Red Sea. And the truth of the matter is, is that when his heart was hardened towards the end of the Exodus, it just amplified who he really was. Nobody overrode his free will and said, Nope, now you got to be evil. God already knew who Pharaoh was. God already knew how he was going to respond. And God said, You want to play that way? We'll see where your loyalty gets you. Your loyalty to your Egyptian gods. And when you look at the Exodus from the standpoint of Yahweh making war with the Egyptian gods, which uh, Exodus 12 12 says this For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. And so looking at it from that standpoint, (laughs) thank you, Bill, you're doing a good job keeping up back there. I'm all over the place. Um, But looking at it from that standpoint, like Pharaoh was viewed by himself and his people as being Horus incarnate. Horus was the son of Osiris, who was the god of the underworld, and and Pharaoh viewed himself as an incarnate deity. He made the wrong list, (laughs) let me tell you. When, when, when God was going through and systematically judging all of these, these wicked Egyptian deities and trying to get Pharaoh to let his people go, Pharaoh was on the wrong side. And he paid dearly for it. But it wasn't because God caused him to be born and made Pharaoh and be evil and then destroyed just so his name could be known. Like, that's not, that's not a healthy way of looking at this. And when we look at it from Paul's perspective in Romans 8, like, all, all the bad works together for good. Not because God dictates evil. He doesn't need to do that to accomplish his purposes. But because he's actually a really good chess player. And despite all the evil thrown in the way of God's people over the years, he has always come out on top. Man, I thought that was exciting. Nobody else thought that was exciting. Oh, my goodness. Listen, God does not need people to do evil things so he can look good. Right? That's not what he needs. He said, listen... You can throw whatever you got at me, and you can do whatever you want to my people, but guess what? We're going to come out on top every single time, because I will not fail. And that circles back around to the point that Paul is making. God's promises are not void. He's not being unfaithful to his people, right? He is is fully in control, and he is going to use all these things that are coming up against his church. And guess what? The church is going to grow. Guess what? The, the, The gospel is going to reach the ends of the earth because he will not be stopped. And Pharaoh's biggest mistake was that his loyalty was in the wrong place. If the script was flipped, and he was like, yeah, I'll let his people go, he'd have been fine. He would have been perfectly fine. And so, <laughs> that's <laughs> that says something. Where you know, Where is our loyalty today? And so, as Paul and the Old Testament writers would have seen it, Pharaoh had aligned himself with supernatural evil, and, and instead of relenting, he chose to move forward. And it may not look like this, to the Western eye, but that's that's what was in play here. And so what happened though with Pharaoh? Think about this for a second. The Israelites, the Red Sea collapses on the Egyptian armies, they go into the promised or they're on their way to the promised land, and they get to these towns and these these random people like like Rahab are like, oh we heard about what happened in Egypt. No, we we want to be we want to be on Yahweh's side, you know, of this this whole thing that's about to happen. Like God used these circumstances, God used this evil to perpetuate his name, his reputation, his goodness into the broader world. Nobody nobody knew that name before this happened, right? And here we are in the, in the United States of America, thousands of years later, and we're still talking about it, right? Like, this is, this is why these things happen. And so, as we move on, verse 18, verse 18 here, God says, uh, <clears throat> So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And you will say to me then, Why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so... To make known the riches of his glory, upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, the church, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from the the Gentiles. Listen, there's a lot. There's a lot going on here. And to sum it all up, like what Paul is saying is like, listen, God's promises they've not failed. His people will continue, because his people is no longer bound by borders or bound by a language, or bound by any other ethnic barrier, his, his people are bound by those who call on his name. The, the, the body of Christ is circumcision neutral. Jews, Gentiles, whoever else, right? Everybody falls under the name of Jesus. And so what Paul is saying is that, listen, the same way that Israel was elect and given a purpose as God's chosen people, the church bears the same responsibility. Who did did God foreknow? He foreknew that there would be a church calling on the name of his son, and he predestined that church corporately to do good works, to spread, watch this, that Eden blessing from that small group of apostles in Jerusalem to the whole world. That, listen, election, God's choosing, has nothing to do with anything that we do or who we are or our eternal destination, but it has everything to do with with what we are called to do and so as we shift gears here what does it look like what does it look like to be elect what does it look like to be god's people and i think paul's laid some really good groundwork in here and i'm just going to kind of loop through and and reconnect some dots here but number one living like we're elect what does it look like to live as if we are god's chosen people because we are number one we live on mission To be called God's people means that we are committed to spreading the Eden blessing, not curses of exile. Listen, some of us, I was just talking with somebody yesterday. We were talking about like curse words, and and I'm like, listen, like, yeah, you know, like, obviously, like, we shouldn't really curse around people. But like, like the bigger picture to me is like, there are people who don't curse that say really awful things that stick with people for the rest of their life. But we're very concerned about specific words that our culture deems bad. But, like, when was the last time that you used your mouth to spread blessing and not cursing? And we'd be quick to say, like, well, we don't cuss. Oh, yeah. I bet your children have some trauma from some things that you've said. Ooh, yeah. And you've either got that or you've done that or both, right? <laughs> we all make mistakes. But my point is that, like, living as a blessing, like, our, our position, our occupation as God's people calls for a higher standard, Right? If we're not bearing fruit, what are we doing? Listen, you can read your Bible for 10 hours a day. You can pray five, six hours a day. But if you don't bear fruit, something is wrong. Something is very wrong. And I think that part of that is that we don't live on mission. We come to church. We get our coffee. We get our awesome donuts. Where's Ashley? Thank you so much, Ashley. That was a huge blessing. And it wasn't awesome. Yes. Give her a hand real quick. All right. But listen. Christianity to us in the West has become we show up to church we drink our coffee we get a sermon we think about it for 10 minutes on the way home or however far you drive and that's it and the rest of the week we we do what we want what it is that we want to do we don't live on mission we don't care if our neighbors know Jesus or not we don't care about our co-workers eternal destination or the fact that they are living a very hopeless depressed life without Christ we don't care but we should. But we should live on mission because, because God said, guess what? I've blessed you so that you will bless others. Don't sit on it. Don't sit on your blessing and not share it with others. And listen, if you've, if you've not experienced this, I promise you, if you share that blessing, you will definitely be blessed. We're all so worried. And you're like, well, that's easy to say. You know, you're, <laughs> you know, you're a pastor, right? You're fine. You know, like I listen, I, I don't do this because like this is like my, my job. Like I do this because I genuinely want to see the gospel reach bully's quarters. Right? And you're like, Oh yeah, well you ain't got no money to give away, so how are you and you're right, right? I don't <laughs> but but the principle is the same. Like when was the last time we were willing to, to sacrifice and to give generously for the sake of the gospel and not expect anything in return? It doesn't matter if somebody gives you a hand or not, right? Let's live on mission. Number two, put yourself last. Paul, you know, made an example of the biggest example. Jesus was willing to lay down his life for people that hated him and despised him. And Paul was willing to do the same. When was the last time that we deprived ourselves of something for somebody else, for the sake of the gospel? When was the last time that we did that? In Paul's mind, part of living on mission part of of sharing our blessings, part of of living as the elect is to say, hey, listen, everything that I have belongs to the Lord and I want him to use all of it to, to get this message to other people, to show other people that the God that was there with Adam and Eve wants to have a relationship with everybody today, right? When was the last time that we deprived ourselves for somebody else? Number three, evaluate your standing we talked a little bit about pharaoh and we talked about how you know his issue was really where his allegiance was and you know he was very allegiant right to his to his gods to his belief system and to himself but where is our loyalty and you think about you think about the children of israel and you think about who they were and what they went through and i think a lot of you know a lot of us we have this like very glazed over or I don't know, just a a very sugared view of who Israel was. But here's, here's the reality. Like, Abraham made a lot of mistakes. So did his sons. So did their sons. And then the Israelites, they're in bondage in Egypt, and they come out, and they're like, oh, this is great. Let's worship Yahweh. And then they build a golden calf, and a bunch of people die. It's terrible. And then fast forward, and they finally get into the promised land after failing to complete the whole conquest. And then the period of the judges where everything's terrible again because they, you know, the Bible says they did that which was right in their what? their own eyes and then finally they get a king but they pick a really bad king because you know they were like well Saul we're you know we got to kill some giants Saul's a really tall guy so this is going to work out great they pick an awful king and then finally they get David their king and David their king ends up making some really horrible mistakes and then after David's reign we have Solomon and in the days of Solomon the Bible says that that gold was as common as dust in the land they were wealthy they were booming economically and then guess what Solomon made some horrible mistakes and then guess what a couple kings down the road they all go into exile and the land is empty and about eighty percent of the Israelites were wiped out by the Assyrians like this is this is the people this is the people group that thought they had a higher moral standing than the Gentiles and what really what really made their position what made their calamities was where their loyalty was the israelites always had a problem worshiping other gods the israelites always had a problem having misplaced priorities they never put god first and look where it got them and what paul is saying is like hey guess what that was god's elect people and they still went astray they were still apostate they still didn't get with the program and what paul is what paul is was is is asking his audience to do is hey listen evaluate where your loyalty is. Where do you actually stand in your faith? Are we doing this thing just because it's it's what we've grown up in? It's our religion? It's what we do? I like the coffee here, so I come? Or are we actually here for Jesus? Because in Paul's mind, listen, you can, Jewish people, you can do all those things, but none of that matters anymore. What matters is Jesus and your neighbor, and that's it. So where is your loyalty this morning? Well, I've got good news. The litmus test. Number one, are we living on mission? And number two, are we willing to put ourselves last? Thanks for tuning in for this message on the Bethlehem Church Podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. If you want to know more about us, feel free to check out our website at BethlehemChurch.cc. And also in every message that we publish, you'll find our sermon notes in the description. And we hope that you'll study these topics further. We'll see you next time.